0: Setting fire to the stoner stereotype. Sparking up candid conversations with cannabis researchers, entrepreneurs, and advocates. Educator, author, and advocate Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Please welcome the host of Burning Issues, Dr. Mitch Earlywine.
1: Thanks for joining us again on Burning Issues. I'm your host, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. As many of you know, I love all things in the cannabis world. I wrote the book, Understanding Marijuana. I edited the book, Pot Politics, and I also penned the High Times column, Ask Dr. Mitch. I do my part for the movement whenever I can as a member of the Advisory Board for Normal, that's the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. I'm also super happy to be on CannabisRadio.com. Today, I'm completely delighted to hear from one of my real I don't even know what to say, like role models. It's Joshua Latrell. Joshua's part of Veterans for Cannabis and Veterans for Cannabis Foundation. Their mission is to reduce deaths associated with accidental overdose from pain meds. And hey, you know how they would do it with none other than medical cannabis. The guy cleans up beautifully. He puts on a tie. He testifies in front of committees of people who I wouldn't even want to go near. He's also a veteran himself. Joshua Latrell, thanks for joining us on
2: Burning Issues. Well, Dr. Earlywan, I can't say thank you enough for everything that you do, sir. Um, for everybody in, in the industry, in the cannabis industry, for veterans, for civilians across the country. So thank you so much. It's my honor to be a part of this show with you today.
1: All right. Well, hey, why don't you start out with just telling us your
2: story, if you don't mind? Sure, absolutely. Well, um, I served six years in the Air Force. I was a bioenvironmental engineer, um, the Air Force's equivalent to Ocean EPA put together, uh, dealt with occupational health, preventative medicine, and environmental protection while I served in the Air Force. Uh, during wartime, I was a nuclear biological chemical technician. So when we deployed to Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003, I was part of the group that uh, was looking for WMDs, or weapons of mass destruction, in Iraq. It was a really great opportunity for me, and, and I never thought I would be in the industry that I'm in now, um, but some of the issues that have come up since serving, and I served six years, like I said before, and got out with an honorable discharge, and spent 10 years in the insurance and financial services industry, where I had the opportunity to move to Vermont. And when I went to Vermont, uh, there were two points that that made me uh, make that decision. First was a mentorship opportunity that came up, and then second was that they had just passed their medical cannabis program So I was able to go to Vermont and get my medical marijuana card while I was there. And when I did that, Dr. Early-Wine, I was able to reduce the prescription medication intake by 80%. Wow. I knew it was unbelievable. I knew that the ability to basically, I I grew the product there in my apartment um, with my landlord who was a, a police officer. And the ironic portion of that was that while I was there, the three years I spent in Vermont, the the landlord actually got cancer. And he came to me looking for something to help him out. So I was not only able to help him out, uh, but I was able to reduce that uh, prescription medication intake by 80% for me. So then I came back to Georgia because I wanted to take this fight um, back to my home state where I'm from, And I really, you know, just started this whole process uh, speaking in front of the legislative council saying, help me save me, help me save my own life. And when I got up to testify in front of the House and Senate committees, I had people coming up to me afterwards saying, you know, Joshua, your, your story sounds so much like mine or my uncle, my aunt, my mom and my dad's. And I was like, wow. So then that's how Veterans for Cannabis all came about. And then the foundation was formed and. And we're really trying to bring uh, cannabis as a treatment option to the forefront, not only for veterans, but we're fighting for civilians as well. Because I know that by, by taking this fight to the state legislatures and, and hopefully the federal government at some point in time, we can make the changes for veterans, which will lead to changes for the civilian market as well. So that's what we fight for. You know, it's, it's
1: just such a noble cause, but I think some folks don't even understand what's up with the opiates and why they might be problematic. Could you tell us?
2: Yes, sir. Um, it's absolutely atrocious what the Veterans Administration is doing to us now. Now, not only me, but you know my brothers and sisters that served alongside me in war, and those who didn't serve in war are still, uh, as they get out, they're still prescribed opiates at a at, a, at such an unbelievable pace that it's just mind boggling. And what they do to our bodies from the inside out is just break us down and kill us. Basically, the Veterans Administration is killing veterans uh, with prescription medications. So what we're trying to do is bring cannabis to the forefront to the VA to prove to them that first and foremost, cannabis will not kill anyone. Veterans die at a 50% greater rate from accidental overdose than civilians do. That's that's crazy. And it's absolutely preventable with cannabis as the treatment option. But unfortunately, as the laws are now, if you test positive for cannabinoids, you don't get the prescription medications and they make addicts out of us where every single month the VA sends out medications and there's about a four to five day lag between the opiates that they get and then the, the second round. So basically if you have a, a prescription, uh, in November, you get 28 days worth of opiates and it takes about 34 days to get them new medications to you. So you have a six day window that you're without medications. You have withdrawals every single month. This is not only for me, but for veterans across the country. And there's nothing that we can do about it because the DEA obviously changed the scheduling on the for the narcotics a few years ago. And when they did that, the VA is not allowed to give us medications more than 28 days at a time. So every veteran that's on opiates uh, goes through withdrawals every single month. So that's how we get to the point that they get pushed to heroin or other, other outside drugs that they don't want to do, but they're pushed to do it because they need to, um, you know, alleviate the issues with the withdrawals that come up. And then if you use cannabis as a treatment option to alleviate those issues, then you test positive and they won't give you the medications that you need because there are days. And I'll be honest with you that even the cannabis doesn't help the pain, Uh, you know, with me personally and my, my brothers and sisters. So, you do need something else. You don't want to use it all the time, but you have to use it sometimes. But then if you test positive for cannabinoids, you can't get access to the medicine. So that's what we're fighting for is to make sure that cannabis is a treatment option that all veterans can have across the country. It doesn't matter where you're at. And then by doing that, we can lead to civilians having that access as well.
1: A noble fight. It is. I think people don't really understand what opiate withdrawal is all about. Would you care to describe it?
2: Yes, sir. It's, You know, it's different for each person. Um, I've had men and women tell me that, you know, theirs goes with really bad uh, withdrawal symptoms such as the shakes, the sweats, um, throwing up. Uh, They can't concentrate. They can't sleep. Uh, You know, mine personally is is basically I'm, I'm pretty good until I go to bed. But at that point in time when I lay down and my body starts shutting down, the shakes come and the shivers come and I can't sleep. And, and sleep deprivation is the biggest issue that, that is facing our veteran community when we're talking about the withdrawals because when they don't get sleep, they don't get rest, their body and their mind doesn't function right, and that's where the depression sets in. And then that leads to the suicide that we're seeing, which is an absolute epidemic in the veteran community.
1: Oh, it is just heartbreaking. And then I think folks are confused. In a medical cannabis state, it's still not okay for veterans at the VA to use cannabis.
2: Dr. Mitch, that's the most frustrating thing about this whole issue is that um, in Colorado, you know, Washington, Oregon, where the states that have a legal program put together, or even one of the 30 or so states that now have a medical cannabis program put together. The veterans cannot use cannabis as a treatment option. Because the VA says that it is still federally illegal, and if you test positive for it, they will take you off of your medications. Now, granted, they can't take away your payment for your disability, or they can't take away the option to see you for an issue that comes up at a medical facility, but they will not send you your medication. And that's absolutely unbelievable, and it's unacceptable in my mind's eye, because that's what we're fighting against. You send these men and women their medication monthly, and then you tell them, hey, we're just going to cut you off. Then what do you do? You push them to the black market for something else. And that is where the whole problem and the issues come from.
1: It's just mind-boggling, given all that folks have given to this country who you know sort of end up in that situation. Hey, as my uh, cannabis radio brother Vivian McPeak would say, We've got to pause for the cause because there are flaws in the laws. We'll be right back with more Burning Issues.
0: More Burning Issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors.
3: Do you want to get in on the booming cannabis industry? With New Frontier Data, we give industry insiders the power of big data analytics to help navigate this rapidly growing and changing landscape. New Frontiers tools help you make critical decisions based on the facts. Our industry analyst reports reveal the best opportunities. Our custom research engagements deliver answers to the most difficult questions. And our cutting-edge big data platform, Equio, puts real-time information and answers you need right at your fingertips. Go to www.equio.io and sign up for your free membership today. That's E Q U io.io to sign up now. The power of real-time big data is now in your hands. Run with New Frontier and let us help you conquer the wild.
4: Low on funds? Don't worry. Weed Firm Replanted is free to download.
3: Download Weed Firm Replanted for free on the App Store and Google Play today. Get growing, Mr. Growing.
5: While the feds and state are doing their dance, you still need to transact business and manage your cash. Go professional and let your customers pay with PayQuick. They pay you and they earn rewards points.
0: keep your cannabis cravings under control. Feed your mind with CannabisRadio.com Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues. Only on CannabisRadio.com
1: Hey, Cannabis Radio listeners, we're back. It's Dr. Mitch Earlywine, and I'm talking to the delightful Joshua Latrell of Veterans for Cannabis and Veterans for Cannabis Foundation. He's told us quite a bit about the cumbersome circle that veterans can find themselves in trying to get opiates for pain, but then suddenly running out of opiates at the end of each month because of some wild administrative predicament, and then either being driven to the black market or driven to go through withdrawal month after month, if only they had some medical cannabis to alleviate these issues. Now, Josh, I'm still a little confused. How come folks can't get their meds every, every month like normal?
2: Well, you know, Dr. Mitch, when you're looking at this situation, um, many of my my veterans in our community, uh, the members of the PFC that are in the legal states, what they do is they just choose to utilize cannabis as their only treatment option. So um, they don't get the medications from the VA. So if you're in a state that has a medical cannabis program put together and you have access to it, there's no problem. But the problem is those other states where they don't have a medical cannabis program put together. Or they do have a medical cannabis program put together, and they don't have access to it, which is the same thing that we're happening, uh, we're seeing as an issue here in Georgia, North Carolina, the Southeast, you know, basically. So what we've seen is those veterans choose not to get the medications from the VA. Unfortunately, the veterans who are in the other states that don't have access to it don't have a choice. They don't want to go to the black market because they don't know what they're getting one, and two, they can't get it on a consistent basis. So we may find a strain that works well for their PTSD, uh, but then the third month that they're using that strain in an illegal state, um, it switches up, you know, because these men and women, the, the unfortunately, the drug dealers, as they're labeled in the market, uh, they don't know what they're giving the, the patient, and we've got to find a way to fix that. So. Um, What we've done is is we're working to change the laws in those states where they don't have access to it, and we're working at the state level right now so that hopefully we can force the federal government to make those changes, and that really comes down to DNA sequencing uh, to really understand what that cannabis is, what that strain is, and then we can consistently give that veteran the same experience where I can replicate it and reproduce it so that if a veteran does find that one strain works well for their chronic pain issue – or their cancer issue, or their PTSD issue, then we can make sure we can continuously have a stream of access to that strain. That's the key, and that's what we're working so hard towards changing the laws in the states that we need to change it so that we have access in our, our community, and our veteran community, to consistent medicine across the board.
1: I mean, that would be such a good deed and and really help so many people. It's, it's uh, a delightful thing to dream about, and I'm sorry you have to go to so much effort, Tell us about uh, testifying in front of some of these committees and and how it feels and
2: what questions come up. You know, it's it's an interesting feeling. Uh, originally, it was it was a little overwhelming um, dealing with PTSD. Sometimes it can be extremely overwhelming. Um, I consider myself one of the lucky ones that uh, I can still be out in public uh, and and deal with it, although I'm on a more heightened state. But to talk about my issues in front of a a panel of senators and state representatives. That was one of the most terrifying issues that I I had ever faced in my life. And being in war, I don't think um, even held a candle to that because you train for war. You train to be able to react in a split second. For this, there was no training. So I was kind of thrown to the fire. But it's been great, Dr. Mitch, for personal – basically a way to to develop and and, uh, face my issues, my PTSD that that so many veterans struggle with. When I talk about the issues that I'm faced with, it's a great therapy. And that's one of the things that I've found through this whole point is that speaking with the senators and the representatives about the issues that we face with, the, the overcoming the battle issues, then trying to assimilate back into society, trying to be in a crowd. Like going to a college football game or or an NFL game is extremely difficult for most of us. So working through that and then explaining that to the senators and reps, it really helps educate them because most of these people are not veterans, and that's one of the things we're trying to change. We're trying to make sure that veterans are, are being represented um, at the state and federal level as well. So testifying has was tough initially, but it's become kind of second nature now because I've It's really helped me deal personally with PTSD, and that's what I'm trying to tell uh, the members of VSC as well, to talk about the issues, to be able to speak to somebody and uh, come up with good solutions because somebody else may have been through the same situation that you faced yourself with.
1: You know, Joshua, it's it's blowing my mind. I was at the VA in Jackson, Mississippi for a year, and I have two veteran clients up here in Albany, and the exposure treatments are really what it's all about, so the fact that you're essentially exposing yourself uh, in such a wild setting is in some ways the greatest way to do treatment, but also uh, incredibly petrifying from, from the sound of it.
2: <laughs> yes, sir, it is.
1: I do have one publication on cannabis and PTSD, and it does look like the the symptoms really do respond well, at least according to the self-reports of veterans like yourself. Are there uh, symptoms in particular that you think it's particularly helpful for?
2: Yes, sir. There are a number of different symptoms, uh, especially in the veteran community. But, you know, the anxiety and the depression are two of the things that most veterans are faced with, Uh, not only when they get out, they're they're faced with trying to become a part of society where there's not that big team work or team effort you know you're not your brother's not looking over your back your sister's not looking over your back you're going back into public where nobody really cares they're trying to do their own thing so to try to deal with that it's, it's overwhelming sometimes so we've seen a really great treatment option with cannabis uh, for anxiety and depression and PTSD specifically But the thing that I talk about the most is the PTSD. And I've had a lot of questions from the Senate and and House committees when I'm doing these testimonies, and they're like, well, why do you need access to THC or CBD or whatever you're calling it? Why do you need uh, to have a vaporizer? Why can't we just use oil? And I said, you know, the biggest reason is because of the immediate effect. If I wake up from a night terror and I can't figure out where I'm at, my heart's beating, I'm pounding, I'm crying, it's two o'clock in the morning, the only way to settle down is to reach for a vaporizer and inhale and exhale. And almost immediately, Dr. Earlywine, you know, almost immediately you have relief. I'm able to settle down. I'm able to forget, which is one of the side effects of cannabis, right? The short-term memory loss. I'm able to forget the issue that I was dreaming about, or that night tear, that PTSD. So I've become more familiar with my surroundings and I'm happier immediately. That's why we need different delivery methods, and that's what we are really advocating for, is not only we have to have THC and CBD both in the cannabis uh, program, but there needs to be different delivery methods as well, such as oils, you know, vaporizers, uh, flour, cannabis, for those who enjoy flour. But we've got to have different delivery options so that veterans can make sure they have access to whatever it is that alleviates their issues immediately. They need that access, and that's key.
1: I think that rapid onset is sometimes so hard to explain to folks, and I'm really grateful to you for putting it in uh, such splendid terms. So can you tell us the distinction now? You've got Veterans for Cannabis and the Veterans for Cannabis Foundation. What's what's the difference?
2: Well, you know, we started down this road with Veterans for Cannabis, and that was really the key to make sure that we were providing access to a consistent basis of product. And we've been working for the last year and a half to find growers uh, here in the United States. Instead of purchasing European, you know, hemp and trying to make CBD oil out of that, we want to make sure that we're working with with United States growers not only to provide a CBD product, a hemp-based product in all 50 states so that veterans have access to that first and foremost, but we're doing a DNA sequencing behind that as well so that we know that we can deliver a consistent experience to the veteran we can replicate that and reproduce that experience and then our second phased approach is going to be in the states where there's a recreational program we're actually partnering with growers there to have flower product on the shelves as well that has been dna sequenced, so that we can unequivocally say the veteran is getting the same thing every single time because blue dream as you may know is the most uh, for lack of better words counterfeited um, strain out there everybody's got a blue dream Three out of four months of veterans utilizing Blue Dreams, and then that fourth month, uh, it, it's being really great for their PTSD, but the fourth month, it's just not working. Well, it's because somebody's brother's sister's cousin said it's Blue Dream, and it really wasn't Blue Dream. It looked like it and smelled like it, but it didn't feel like it. So we're trying to alleviate that issue with the DNA sequencing, and that's what VFC is there to, to do. Veterans for Cannabis is to, to be able to put the product out there so that veterans have access to it. And then the foundation, we're really going to focus on a study. So what we've done is I've worked with the Veterans Administration. We have a, a couple of physicians on board with us through the foundation that are overseeing our program. And we're do- doing basically a case study so that we can collect the information and data to force the federal and state government to make the changes that we need to make in the laws to have access to cannabis in our veteran community, which will then domino effect down the civilians as well. So the foundation is there to oversee the study in the program and to raise funds from that portion so we can bring in donations to help veterans who have, um, you know, issues with uh, they don't have enough money to purchase a product or we need to pay a physician to oversee the product. So that's what the foundation is there for to oversee the case study. And then VFC Veterans for Cannabis is for the product because the foundation can't really touch any product across the board. So VSC is there so that we can have access to the product, work with the growers, and put product on the market. And then the foundation will will oversee the study that we're doing um, to really, you know, educate the the state and local lawmakers as well
1: it's an amazing service you guys are doing and it, and it just warms my heart i really appreciate it hey this is dr mitch early wine on burning issues we've been talking to the delightful joshua luttrell of veterans for cannabis and the veterans for cannabis foundation they're doing some amazing work we'll be right back with another chapter of self-compassion in the art of activism please stay tuned
6: more
0: burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. The National Cannabis Industry Association presents the Seed to Sale Show, January 31st and February 1st at the Colorado Convention Center in Denver. Register now at www.c2saleshow.com or 888-409-4418. The NCIAC The Sale Show, the largest cannabis business event to be held in Denver, will host over 2,000 cannabis professionals and focus on innovations and technology in cultivation, infused products and extraction, and sales strategies. The show will recognize the best in the industry with the Cannivation and Canatech Awards. Register before January 6th for $100 savings at seedtosaleshow.com. Use the code RADIO15 for an additional 15% off. Plan your experience now for the NCIA Seed to Sales Show, January 31st and February 1st. Seed2Saleshow.com or 888-409-4418.
4: This cannabis should be no crime. Hemp ink is even
1: hot proved by the man who run high times. Oh yeah, get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Lama out. Got to tend to me own crops, you know. Money
3: don't make itself. Hemp Inc. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Voober vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Voober Vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Voober way. From dabs to chivas, sativas to indicas, we roll out a whole concentrate of fresh new content every week. It's like going from the greenhouse to the dispensary.
2: CannabisRadio.com.
6: Welcome to Hempire, presented by CW Hemp, a weekly installment dedicated to exploring the non psychoactive side of the cannabis plant. Once a cornerstone of the American economy, hemp has been used in over twenty-five thousand products, including paper, textiles, construction materials health food, and fuel. Now, tune in and discover all there is to know about this wonder crop making a historic comeback. Hempire, presented by C.W. Hemp, starts now.
1: Hey, welcome again to Hempire, the show devoted to all things hemp. I'm super excited to have you back on Cannabis Radio. We've got a wonderful guest today, Alex Brant Zawadzki, and I'm actually going to let him introduce himself and just give us a little bit about his background. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you, Dr. Earlywine.
7: My name is Alex Brant Zawadzki, or BZ for short. Uh, my background, I sort of bounced around a bit, journalism, politics, community organizing, and right now I'm sort of trying to make it in the barely existent hemp industry. There's some boat hemp in there and a few organizations. Uh, I helped work on getting letters of support for SB 566, the California Industrial Hemp Farming Act. And yeah, you know. Sounds
1: great, man. I'm really grateful to anybody who's doing this, but I feel like you really got your finger on the pulse of the the hemp world right now. You've mentioned there some mind, folks go. out there who don't really understand that there really is a science behind hemp, could you could you comment on that a minute?
7: So a couple of years back, I was studying at the University of San Francisco, getting a master's in public affairs, and I did a kind of a self-imposed uh, specialty. What do you call it? Um, anyhow, I focused on hemp, and uh, one of the first papers I wrote, it was the first time I'd kind of, you know, one had access to all the, the sort of research tools you get at a university to do this kind of work. And uh, two, you know, having been a long time hemp enthusiast and then having covered it in one capacity or another in, in journalism once or twice, you know, I thought I knew what was up. I did not know what was up. There were things like advantages of hemp construction materials, hemp carbon nanosheets, you know, hemp graphene, all the different ways you can get biofuel out of hemp and uh, you know, the cellulosic ethanol. Anyway, multiple different ways. It, you can triple crop hemp for biofuel, the seeds, the herd fiber, and the vast fiber. And, and it's just the opportunities are incredible. And But then, you know, I was a little surprised to encounter some pushback, even from within the industry, people not really familiar with the science or saying the science wasn't in. And, uh, you know, here I am writing my master's thesis with dozens of peer-reviewed research papers from around the world talking about things like, oh, benefits of hemp meal in bread and benefits of hemp biofuel. It's maybe it's the best energy crop. Just sounds I'm like we've come a long way, since
1: hemp, way since, since hemp for since Victory. Hemp for
7: victory. Huh, it has. I was watching him. I remember the first time I watched him for victory in like the recent past. There's a line in there that just told me it was uh, talking about how any 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 soil suitable for corn would be good for hemp. And I thought to myself, man, the corn farmers must have heard that and just been totally scared.
1: (laughs) Given how big the corn industry is, is, I can can only imagine. imagine. Well, you know, yep allude to All some like of the some electronic, electronic and, and, and sort of and nanotype, nanotype things that I feel like some of our listeners like don't really know, about. Don't Would really know about. Would you care to on elaborate on those?
0: A
7: bit. Um, I mean, you know, they're very developmental, but there's a uh, scientist named David Midland who was at University of Alberta, and now I believe he is at Clarkson in New York. And he has figured out a way to generate carbon nanosheets from hemp. And uh, there's a big write-up a year or two ago. You know, this could revolutionize all sorts of things. Graphene at the moment is uh, it's you know been called the super material of the future, kind of like hemp was once called. Uh, and costs it could cost as much as two thousand dollars to manufacture per gram, at least back in 2013. Meanwhile. This guy, Professor Midland, is saying, "Oh, well, you can use hemp to manufacture graphene for less than five hundred dollars per ton, which is about wow, that's a thousand super
1: impressive. impressive." All right, Absolutely. hey, we're back. Sorry, we had a, we had a little uh, connection issue, but uh, Alex, you were giving us the lowdown on the ecological advantages of hemp,
7: right? Um, I was explaining how you know, an example of of that and how whatever you're using hemp for, it it can improve um, the ecology was uh, that high yielding energy crop paper I was talking about actually came out of Sweden in 2012. Uh, They're talking about in addition to the energy yields and whatnot that make hemp such a good energy crop, it's got other advantages like low pesticide requirements, good weed competition, Suitability as a break crop and cereal oriented crop rotations, blah, 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 um, which are just a bunch of ways of saying that, you know, it has additional benefits. and both, Most of those benefits being a lack of the detriments that other crops can cause. You know, I mean, also, if you're using them for fiber, they're getting you know, an alternative to uh, say cotton, which uses some of the most pesticides of any plant on the planet.
1: So it sounds like there are fewer pesticides, but also like the amount of energy you get in is a good ratio for the amount of energy you get out.
7: Right. Well, they call that with energy crops, the well to wheel ratio. So the well portion being, you know, the carbon footprint, the effort, energy, water, etc., cetera, uh, put into growing the crop, any detriment caused by pesticides or herbicides, all that kind of thing. And then the wheel side of that equation is how much energy you get, you know how effective it is as a fuel, and also how much it pollutes, how much carbon it puts back into the air, that kind of thing.
1: And um, perfect. I think we yeah, got it important. is 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 there a chance to explain sort of how the biofuels really work? Is it just like putting gas in your car or what do you think?
7: It's just like, putting biodiesel in your car, I'd say. So there's three different ways you can get biofuels from hemp. You can use the sort of inner fiber of the herd, the woody chunks, and basically burn them kind of like you would wood or charcoal. There are the long, thin fibers, the sort of ones that you, um, you call it, clothes rope out of, and you can use those for cellulosic ethanol, which is similar to the kind of ethanol you can get from corn, uh, which is another thing to strike fear in the hearts of corn growers. And of course, you can press the seeds and get the oil from that. And then you can use that to make a biodiesel.
1: I mean, so in some ways, it's kind of a triple threat.
7: it it, It is exactly a triple threat. I mean, like I was saying earlier, if you're Growing hemp for energy, you can triple. You can literally use every, every part of the plant. And if you're not, uh, if you're just trying to get a hold of some hemp to make energy out of, all you really need to do is find someone who's growing hemp for a different purpose and whatever part of the plant you can make fuel out of.
1: It just sounds so and much more only- efficient than any other source of biofuel we really have.
7: Would you like me to take it to the ludicrous degree?
1: By all means. I would love lud- ludicrous degrees. We
7: could someday be strapping on our hemp spacesuits, getting into rockets built out of graphene and other materials derived from hemp and fueled by hemp biofuels, among other things, and operated using circuits based on carbon nanotubes derived from hemp. I there's just an article out a couple days ago saying for the first time um, carbon nanotubes are outperforming silicone for electronics. And zoom away off to Mars where you will land and dwell in habitats built from hemp grown on that planet from seeds stashed in previous rockets and eat (laughs) a diet. And eat a diet based mainly on, you know, hemp It contains all 19 essential well quote unquote 19 essential amino acids that's a whole other debate right there but hemp's got them
1: well and- no we'll get into that we, we do have to take a break the hempire community is really enjoying this uh science fiction reverie and we'll we'll talk about the food and and more from the plant i really appreciate alex vivian mcpeak my cannabis radio brother would say we've got a pause for the cause because there are flaws in the laws we'll be right back after these messages
6: Hold on for more Empire after you've grown to learn more about our sponsors.
0: Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at (sighs) OrangeHillDevelopment.com. Cash? Sorry. I don't carry around cash, and I don't want to use the ATM and pay surcharges.
5: You don't need to carry cash. Haven't you heard about PayQuick?
0: Okay, tell me about PayQuick.
5: It's the safe and easy way to pay. It works just like your debit card to securely pay for your purchase. And it gives you rewards points every time you use it. Nice. Pay Quick, the safe and easy way to pay. P-A-Y-Q-W-I-C-K dot com. the Stoner
4: Jesus Show podcast on CannabisRadio.com. And don't try to debate me on something. Motherfucker, I can't do many things well. But words are my shit the
0: stoner jesus show live mondays wednesdays and fridays at 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific or find the stoner jesus show podcast on demand at cannabisradio.com
6: and stonerjesus.net he's bitches time to harvest more crop-tastic content on empire only on cannabisradio.com and we're back
1: thanks for joining us again on empire We're talking with Alex BZ. Uh, We were actually having a really nice reverie about a science fiction scene where basically everything that got us all the way to Mars uh, was hemp-based. And then uh, we were alluding to the food we were going to eat that would also be hemp-based. Can we talk a minute about the amino acids and the the wild nutrients that are available in the hemp seed and the rest of the planet?
7: Uh, The food side of it isn't my particular area of expertise. I'd be interested to know what you've heard about it.
1: I mean, I, I, do, I do get a lot of ranting about how the essential amino acids are almost all there, and I know folks get really concerned about their need for protein when it comes to any kind of vegetarian source. But I'm afraid that's just uh, the meat industry kind of invading our minds over the years about how much, basically, how much, how much we end up uh, eating in the first place. I'm not sure adults need uh, all the red meat we seem to be eating.
7: Oh well, I. Definitely, don't think we need as much red meat as the meat industry would suggest. You know, beef is not what's for dinner all the time. But uh, hemp is—you uh, know—it's one of the superfoods. It's uh, got—I can't tell you the exact amounts of protein, but I mean, it's one of those things where—I mean, there's—you know—hemp protein powder is a massive seller for a reason, and. You know, part of that is also because it's a good alternative to, say, people who are trying to avoid whey protein products or, or soy, actually. Avoiding soy has become a big thing and for, for people concerned about, you know, whether or not we're really supposed to be digesting soy or unfermented soy. But, you know, in a, back to the science angle, uh, that same university in Slovenia that put out the paper on agroclimatic factors influencing you know, THC levels in hemp, you know, which would be hugely valuable to farmers trying to keep that THC level below 0.3%. They also had a great paper on the benefits of hemp meal added to bread. I mean, you can use hemp for food in anything where you would be using an oil or a meal of some kind. Or corn and that's the amazing thing about this plant it's it's not necessarily the single best product for every use out there that would be silly it has actually been proven to be the best product for some uses but what it is is it's an alternative it's another option that producers and manufacturers have in many cases it's a cheaper option in many cases it's a superior option. And so, it just stands to compete with, you know, with wood pulp, with fiberglass, with concrete, plastic, and so here's what's going to happen: it's got it's it's got own price elasticity, meaning, you know, even if hemp becomes insanely popular and farmers start growing tons more hemp, and then there's a lot, the the market is is filled, and the price drops, hemp is going to become cheaper. But that means it'll become the cost-effective cost alternative for a bunch of new applications. As the, each time the price of hemp goes down, the utility of hemp goes up. So basically, even if the value of hemp, every time the value of hemp drops, the utility of hemp goes up. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. So as prices go down, it's actually going to become more and more competitive in each of these different domains. I I feel like this is a super exciting time to be a hemp investor. I do notice that all the the studies you're citing seem to be from outside the U.S. Do you have any comments on that?
7: I do. There's a general attitude uh, of sort of disregard for research done outside of the – borders of the 50 United States and it's frankly shocking and offensive. I mean there there is there is a tome of data out there uh peer-reviewed studies from respected institutions, respected scientists on all manners of amp and cannabis. Israel is about 10 years ahead of us at least, they're decades ahead of us on their medical cannabis research alone. But It's basically, up until almost this year, it's been incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to conduct research on either medical marijuana or even industrial hemp. Um, Here in California, we've been struggling for years, even though we passed the Industrial Hemp Farming Act back in 2013. Uh, It only lets us grow hemp as permitted by the federal government, basically. And the federal government... Only permitted in 2014 with the Farm Bill, certain ins- research institutions to and work in And you're a real insider on
1: on that. And I'm I'm just curious: are you are you comfortable saying sort of where we could grow and and where things might be happening?
7: Uh, well, I mean, things might be happening now. For the first time, we might actually have the first pilot hemp research project in the state here in California at uh, Cal Poly Pomona. Um, a gentleman by the name of Tony DeVera is just waiting to hear back from the uh, the DEA on his permit, which they told him to expect sometime in September. And that will make him the first sort of DEA-approved researcher in the state, Um uh, you know, we can finally catch up to other states like Colorado and Kentucky, which have been doing some excellent, excellent research um, for, for, for a while now. So when I say research, I'm not talking about massive labs and even, you know, chemistry and taking things apart. Even just basically what seeds grow best here versus what seeds grow best there.
1: Well, so it I've sounds like
7: a... A super exciting
1: time for for all this stuff. Uh, I'm curious, Alex, if if you had, you know, infinite funds and and no legal restrictions, is there a a research study you'd like to see happen right off the bat?
7: There is. I would like to see um, a a really, truly excellent study, Economic Impacts of Industrial Hemp in Kentucky, which was done uh, in 88, 98. Anyway, it is... It just really inspired and infused a lot of my work on this subject, and it was put out by Dr. Eric Thompson, Dr. Mark Berger, and Stephen Allen in, yes, July 1998, Center for Business and Economic Research, University of Kentucky. It talks about all of the various advantages that hemp could benefit Kentucky's economy, everything from animal bedding for their horse racing to biofuels to you know, tobacco substitutes And I just think if that if this study could be expanded to every state and every state could see the specific economic benefit, environmental benefits, scientific benefits of growing hemp in their state, it would be very valuable.
1: Well so it sounds like even one just focused on California could could point towards literally millions and millions of dollars. Is there a a domain you feel like California might be unique or at least uh, categorically different from from Kentucky as far as hemp uses might be concerned? Well, there's
7: a USDA report from early in the 20th century that seems to cite California hemp as growing better, basically getting getting more hemp per acre than anywhere else in the world at that time. So there's that. Um, There's the potential for, you know, 12 months of growing seasons.
1: And then I 12, do know California is, is you know, uh, a much bigger population than Kentucky. It seems like there'd be a, a lot of uh, implications for just feeding folks. Do you feel like that might be an advantage and might be some way to, to add some of this up? Oh,
7: definitely. Tons of advantages. I mean, for example, I was thinking how great would it be for kids if we could, get hemp incorporated into school lunches. I don't see anyone having a problem with that. Do you?
1: <laughs> Sounds like a, a nice vegetarian source of protein that nobody would have yeah. have any trouble with at all. Listen, I no, know you feed it right were, to the kids. Yeah. I know you were responsible. <laughs> okay, maybe,
7: maybe we could start. Maybe we could start with trials and prisons, but I'm sorry. You were saying
1: no, no, no. I, I think uh, the prisoners could use it as well. The, the pressure to keep the THC levels down uh, is there a lot behind that? Do you feel like it's it's really uh, as important as people pretend? And you know, are the are there implications actually that realistic?
7: Nobody's going to um, grow a
1: thirty-two yes, percent THC yes hemp plant,
7: no, right? No. Right. It's um, at the moment it's arbitrary, but you know, it's every every little bit of progress is just that. It's a little bit of progress. It's a little bit closer to the goal. I mean, is it silly that in Colorado? You can only get medical cannabis in a special plastic bag that meets the certifications and has a special clip on it. Uh, I mean, it seems to me it's a little silly simply because I can walk down the street here in San Francisco and pick up my medicine as one would any over-the-counter pharmaceutical substance. Um, But, you know, at the same time, uh, the law is the law. And 0.3% THC is how the federal government has finally begun to differentiate between hemp and THC. And as far as I'm concerned, anything that starts to open up research and actually lets us begin to not re-appreciate, but I mean, to finally begin to appreciate this plant. I mean, think of all, we've done a whole lot of development in terms of our, you know, what we know we can do with basic staple commodities, you know, people weren't making, well, anyhow, we are a little bit behind in our understanding of hemp because no one's been studying it. So anything that lets us, you know, move forward in learning more about it, uh, even if it's arbitrary, even if it's silly, even if it's based on junk science, we're not going to get the gourmet science until we can start doing basic basic research which has been denied to us for decades
1: now that makes sense and and behind that i know you've been uh, instrumental with the vote hemp crew could you tell us a little bit about that movement
7: um i was lucky enough to work with vote hemp during my master's program um mostly here in california with the excellent legal mind of patrick Goggin, who helped draft sb 566 since then i there are you know, more of a nationally focused group and a lobbying group. And I'm a lot more focused or have been a lot more focused specifically on California. Um, I can tell you my favorite story about working with them, which would be getting called a member of the hemp Taliban.
1: (laughs) I can only imagine how that, how that must've happened, but do you feel like Uh, people are getting the message and, and more and more people are, are signing on?
7: Oh, clearly. I mean, it's, it's a bit mind boggling to, you know, talk to people about this, who, who aren't hip to this jazz, who just have better things, other things to pay attention to. And just to hear how many people are still surprised that we can't legally grow hemp in America. They're like, but what about the shampoos? What about the lotions? What about the food bars and all the seeds? And we get imported all got to be imported and you know they think it's silly but then there's you know there are people out there a lot of whom work at places like the DEA and the office national drug control policy who don't even believe that hemp is legit they think that the entire hemp movement is just a, a, a code word for legalizing marijuana and I'm directly paraphrasing uh, gentleman who worked directly under Barry McCaffrey and is quoted about 17 minutes into the Hempsters Plant the Seeds documentary. It's just it's the same kind of disrespectful attitude they have towards other scientists. It's basically you know okay we'll do our best to pretend to take you seriously as long as you acknowledge that your movement is inherently not serious.
1: I mean it almost sounds like some of the creationist stuff or uh, climate change? I mean, are we really at that level of denial?
7: Yes, we very much are. You know, with the issue of, I was just going through emails earlier today where John Lovell, legal advisor to a couple of law enforcement groups out here in California, was calling me, the Taliban, and also saying one of the major difficulties is it's impossible for law enforcement to tell the difference between Uh, industrial hemp and illegal marijuana grows from the air. And that's just demonstrably false. That is visibly false. Uh, You know, hemp grown for fiber especially, you know, that kind of growth looks like uh, bamboo from the air. You know, you want to grow it as close together as possible to inhibit branch growth because you don't want branches. You just want the long tall stalks you know, as opposed to if you're growing medical marijuana, you're going to want to have your plants grown far apart and you know nice and large and bushy. And the only plants from industrial hemp that are even going to remotely resemble that kind of grow would be an oilseed crop. And even that would look a bit out of place because you'd have seeds everywhere. And traditionally, marijuana farmers try to, to avoid that. Uh, I think the technical term for the policy is no sticks, no seeds. But I, oh, could be I, on I, s-
1: I see your point. I appreciate these distinctions. Hey, we're going to have to uh, get further into this a- another time. I'm super grateful to everybody for, uh, you know, just making sure that they could tune in yet again to Hempire. My hearty thanks to Alex Brant who's clearly the, the, the man of the hour as far as hemp is concerned. And uh, <laughs> wouldn't my, go that far, but my incredible gratitude to, to the Cannabis Radio production wizards. Uh, I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, your host. I just want to say, uh, follow your heart and let the data be your guide.
0: expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues only on CannabisRadio.com.
1: Hey, welcome back to Burning Issues. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine with our next chapter of Self-Compassion in the Art of Activism. This is the part of our show that encourages all our listeners to take good care of themselves and each other. Hey, this is how the Burning Issues team helps to support the Cannabis Crusade. We've alluded to some cognitive distortions in the past, ideas that may bounce around in our heads that may not really be true and in fact might be the root to some of our depressed or anxious feelings i wanted to go over a couple of these and just encourage folks to try to catch your mind when your mind is pulling one of these tricks and let your mind do whatever your mind's going to do pat it on the, pat it on the head and then say you know what i'm going to behave in ways that are consistent with my values and not let my thoughts get in the way. So one of my personal favorites, because unfortunately it's one that I do a lot, is called jumping to conclusions. You know jumping to conclusions. It's when you make a negative interpretation, even though you don't really have any facts that really support the idea. So unfortunately, I've had this happen where I'll be walking in somewhere, someone will turn their head and look upset, and I'll think, oh, he's upset with me. In fact, I haven't checked in yet. I haven't even shown that the person really is upset with me, but my mind just runs with it and suddenly I'm feeling bad for really no reason at all. And the whole tacit assumption is that if somebody's upset with me, that's a disaster is yet another irrational cognitive distortion I want to keep in mind. There's sort of two subsets of jumping to conclusions that seem to come up in people's minds. The first one, of course, is mind reading. That's where you sort of arbitrarily conclude that someone's having a negative reaction to you or thinking something bad about you and you don't even bother to check. It's funny how much of our day we spend thinking somebody's mad at us when, in fact, they aren't even giving us any thought at all. The other subset of sort of jumping to conclusions is a cognitive distortion called the fortune teller error. And I think this is a favorite among some of my eating disorder clients. It's when you anticipate that things are going to turn out badly as if you've got some kind of crystal ball. It's when you feel convinced that your prediction is an established fact when in fact it hasn't even happened yet. So if you catch yourself saying, oh, I'm not going to ask so-and-so out because I know she'll say no, or I'm not going to bother putting in effort on this because I know it's going to be a disaster, isn't that, in a sense, the fortune teller error? There's no way we could know until we try. And that's the kind of cognitive distortion that can make us super upset. Another cognitive distortion that seems to be linked to depression is called emotional reasoning. That's when you assume that since you feel bad, things must really be bad. If you catch yourself saying, I feel this is bad, therefore it is bad, that's emotional reasoning. In fact, we've got to check things out. We've got to reflect the way things really are before we let faulty information contribute to our emotions. Just because I feel the day is sad doesn't mean the day is inherently sad. And it's funny how this can sneak up on us without questioning. So if you catch yourself doing that one, by all means, pat your mind on the head and let that thought go. Yet another cognitive distortion is a subset of statements called the should statements. That's when you try to motivate yourself with shoulds and shouldn'ts. It's as if you're going to be whipped or punished just because you expect there's something you should do. And to tell you the truth, musts and oughts are also offenders. And the emotional consequence almost always is guilt. Oh, I should do such and such. Oh, I must do so and so. Oh, I ought to do humma humma. When you direct should statements towards yourself, you can't help but feel bad about whatever it is you think you should do. Now, the chance is there to catch it and say, Wait, is this an iron law? Is there some kind of legal ramification if I don't do this alleged should? And by all means, there rarely is. Let yourself off the hook and let go of that guilt. In another direction, though, you direct should statements towards other people, and it's almost a guaranteed invitation to anger, frustration, or resentment. So if you're feeling that other people should do this or should do that, they must or they ought to behave the way you think, odds are high you'll be angry Angry frustrated or resentful really really soon give this a chance try to catch yourself when you're making these thoughts and let your mind go off on its own direction but behave the way you want to feel and by all means stay with the things that you value hey thanks so much for tuning in to burning issues my hearty thanks to our guest today joshua latrell and all the production wizards at CannabisRadio.com. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Follow your heart and let the data be your guide.